Happy New Year! Welcome to another episode of Tech Policy Grind, the official podcast of the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Uh, every other week, we hammer out the latest in tech law and policy by talking to friends and fellows of the Foundry. And please, everyone, help us find some more blacksmithing puns. Uh, so the Foundry, uh, we're a collection of early to mid-career professionals paving the way at the intersection of law and technology. We're a collection of geographically and ide ideologically diverse folks. Your hosts today are myself, Joseph Jerome, from the Center for Democracy and Technology in Washington, D.C., uh, and Emery Roan, a San Diego-based attorney and a fellow at the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Uh, our third compatriot, Pinal Shah, is out this episode for entirely legitimate reasons. Today, we're joined by Christian Stout, Associate Director for Innovation Policy at the International Center for Law and Economics. I'm, I'm frankly not sure I can do his bio justice. Previously, he was a lecturer in computer science at Rutgers University. He was a computer programmer. He ran a startup and then for some ridiculous reason decided to go to law school. He just ran for New Jersey State Assembly. And if you take a look at his writings on SSRN, they run the gamut to stuff on ICANN, to competition law, to the DMCA, and to the Federal Trade Commission, which is why he's joining us today. We're going to get into the meat of uh, a recent workshop held by the the Federal Trade Commission on informational injuries in mid-December. But before that, uh, we're going to talk about his background and learn a little bit more about Christian. So Christian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, guys. It's a pleasure to be with you. Awesome. Thanks. Uh, so we tend to start all of this um, by asking folks what they're grinding for in tech policy. So as I said, it seems like you're interested in a bit of everything. So what is keeping you up at night? Or I guess, what do you get up in the morning eager to sort of work on? Uh, so the, the stuff that motivates me to be involved in tech policy and that gets me really excited about the work is trying to find the places where we can enhance innovation and new technologies and, and advance social good while reminding ourselves that humans are necessarily limited in our ability to act. So there's always this tension in policy that has to exist between being afraid of things that might happen as a result of new innovations and and new business models and 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 new things while while also wanting to have the wisdom to recognize that our our wise regulators don't always have any more knowledge than we have so we we need to somehow find that balance and the tension between those two impulses so general philosophical approach but in terms of like um uh nuts and bolts policy i think that plays out on um the telecommunications front net neutrality recently was something that that kept me uh, pretty active for a while. I find the Federal Trade Commission really interesting, partially because there's a little tension even in the way I look at it. So I was one of the people who advocated for shifting net neutrality responsibilities over to the Federal Trade Commission. I think they're I think they're on the whole a pretty decent agency. But okay. then at the same time, I think that the Federal Trade Commission has a lot of um, problems in its process that need to be corrected. So there's there's also sort of uh, I think they need to do more, and then they also need to be better at what they do because so, there's a lot of problems. How do you fix that? So Embry and I, I think we're both lawyers that are interested in technology. You actually have a technical background. So are you looking at the stuff that we're arguing about or the things that the Federal Trade Commission's interested in, and it's all a bunch of lawyers running around, and do you just find that frustrating? Or like, what's your solution to this issue? You know, it's... I don't know that there is any one solution to the issue. Coming from a background of having been an entrepreneur and a software developer uh, and, and then also mm. getting policy and law training, I don't know that anybody really knows what's going on uh, <laughs> to, to the point, you know what I mean, to, to the point where 
you can say, well, you need to trust the engineers, you need to trust the lawyers. The fact is, we have a network and uh, we have computer technology and, and, and all these different technologies, right, that engineers, smart people uh, came up with. And then we also have social values that we need to figure out how to work out, right? So the, the network and computers don't determine what our social values should be. So what you do with those, those networks, what you do with the, that technology needs to be something you have to have a conversation about. So, and, and when I say I don't think anybody knows, that's actually by the design, I think, of the universe itself. Everything's in process. So we need to constantly have a conversation and take a look at what's going on and say, do we need to revise our understanding and come up with something better to do here? So I'd like to go back and before we get into the nuts and bolts of the policy, maybe talk a bit a little bit about talk a little bit more rather about your background. Um, sure. I, I think that it's it is not entirely unique, but it is always uh, something to point out when we have uh, a programmer that has sort of come over to the the dark side of the law. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm interested in that process. You know, when did um, I, you know just going by your LinkedIn, you're a web developer in February of 2000. Uh, how how did that process start? Well, I, so I went uh, as an undergraduate, I did not think very hard about what I wanted to do with my life. I sort of was happy to. Who does? <laughs> right, right. Are I you was, telling me I that was, at 18 years old, you didn't know exactly what you wanted to do? So you just no, picked the class that seemed interesting? I, I've never done that in my life. It's actually a little worse <laughs> than that. I showed up to, to Rutgers University, a great school, by the way. I love Rutgers. Uh, but I showed up to Rutgers and none of my family had gone to college before me. Um, mm -hmm. I was the first one to really go. So I didn't really have any wise elders who could guide me through the process. So I showed up to college. Uh, I had a guitar with me and I was interested in playing that. I knew that. <laughs> and um, You're there. I talked to a counselor. Yeah, right. And they're like, well, what do you want to do with you? I was like, I, I, I really don't know. And they're like, OK, you'll be a communications major. So I said, OK. So I did that for uh, three or four years. And then toward the end of my uh, tenure, I started realizing, I was like, oh, now I have to actually think about what I want to do with my life. Uh, so within the last like six to eight months of college, and I had worked in the computer lab. <laughs> Because I liked I liked computers and technology. So the last six to eight months, I was like, I should figure out how to do something. So I started teaching myself to be a computer programmer. And yeah, 2000 um, is a great year to do that. <laughs> it is. It is. Well, so I got out of school. And then for the first year, I, I got a job with a company that did marketing. And I had a terrible first job. They hired me to sell advertising over the phone. Um, on little index cards. They don't, mm -hmm. I don't even know if these things exist anymore. It was, it was awful. But. I convinced the guy, oh, well, you know, there's this like a uh, tech bubble going on, right? This tech boom going on. It wasn't a bubble yet. It's tech boom. You really should be doing <laughs> technology stuff. So he's like, you're right. So I actually convinced him to let me start developing software and like, like experimenting and coming up with things for him to sell to clients. And then I got hired at a, um, uh, there was a body shop, a body shop. I don't know if everybody knows a body shop is a firm that basically just hires a bunch of people and then farms them out to different companies. Like you, you go work at JP Morgan today, you go work at Goldman Sachs tomorrow, right? So they had a tech side of that that they were trying to convert into a um, uh, like a media fancy web development, and so they hired me as one of their one of their web developers. And um, then the internet bubble burst about a month later, <laughs> and so for a year, I then had another year where we didn't have a lot of clients, but I just kept teaching myself more stuff. So I learned Flash, I learned I started learning ASP, uh, and then I started getting more into computer science stuff. I started taking classes at NYU for computer science. And then um, when that folded, one of the clients they had who had an e-commerce startup, they hired me to come on. They're like, oh, well, how good are you with Linux and PHP? I was like, uh, I know of those terms. So he <laughs> hired me. And uh, then I started learning. I became like a Linux and PHP expert and um, started doing that. So then and then like so it was it was a combination of self-teaching and then formalizing. So I would learn stuff and then I would go to NYU for a while and take some of their more advanced computer science classes and mm -hmm. um 
you know, it, it was a very iterative evolutionary process. Do you, do you still get to do any of that? I mean, I, I guess the follow-up question is, A, when does the, the lightning bolt hit? And you're like, well, I need to go to law school. Um, but B, you're, you're writing all this really pretty heavy academic writing now. Do you still get to do any coding, programming? Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I still, so I got to the point where I did want to get involved in policy and politics and law. But my hourly rate is still so high as a tech expert that when people ask me to consult with them on stuff, like I will, I will take a gig here and there um, because I got to the point in my, my software career where I was doing more architecture. So I would like look at systems and think about like, all right, well, here's how you need to put these components together. All right, you have a Salesforce system and a .NET system and you know AWS stuff. Here's how they should connect. Here's the right software design for that. So I still do con uh, consulting on that. I don't really do coding anymore, but honestly, I got tired of doing coding after a while. So, uh, nah, but, but interestingly, my son, he's nine now, I'm going to start teaching his robotics and computer programming, uh, after school group in the spring. So How old is he? He's nine. So they, they have robotics for nine year olds now? Yeah. Cool. Well, he's going in, yeah, in the middle school. I, he has, you should see what they have. It's crazy. Like they have a whole robotics club in my town where it's like the in group. It's like the cool kids in, in the town. <laughs> it's like that in softball. So there's the times know, I, I, they I, are a changing. Oh, they are. I, I expect there to be some sort of uh, like West Side Story gang wars between the softball players and the <laughs> programmers. One can only hope. I mean, that's I know. you know that's coming up. I, you know, that brings yeah. up a great point. I saw also on your LinkedIn that you are a board member of Coded by Kids. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? Yeah, actually. So I recently stepped down from it about a month or two ago because I then I've been on a bunch of different stuff and and I got a little overwhelmed. However, I still love the organization. I think it's great. So Coded by Kids is a uh, startup from Philadelphia. Um, that focused on providing technology training and mostly focusing on computer programming to uh, underprivileged kids in the Philadelphia area. So um, uh, they will go into um, like a, a, t a school in a particular part of Philadelphia that generally is underserved, has doesn't have enough money for books and all this stuff. And they'll actually set up a tech program where a couple times a week the kids will get to actually come in. They'll have volunteers who are experts in coding and, and, and programming come in and teach them how to do that. So they get this like really great experience with mentorship and also really great technology training that gives them skills that they need. So I help them with legal stuff and I help them try to expand into Camden, New Jersey, which is a pretty underserved area too. So during the law school experience, I guess, were, were you still coding? Were you working as a technologist or a programmer yes. at the time? Uh, yeah. how, how did you balance that? I mean, well, one of the, why did you go, why did you go to law school? <laughs> well, okay. So yes, I did work as uh, I worked full time while I was in law school running my software company. Um, so I went part time, but I actually managed to finish law school in three and a half years. So three years is full time, four years is part time. I was sort of in between. Um, and I also tried to get all the different opportunities. So like I was president of the Federal Society when I was in law school, which is uh, for people who don't know, uh, an organization for libertarian and conservative lawyers uh, and judges and legal academics. And I worked for judges, I worked for the public defender in New Jersey. Um, so I like to, I don't sleep a lot. Like <laughs> Evidently not. I'm trying to like right. count up the hours on my hand. Like, I, all right, I, I, that doesn't sound right. doable, but, <laughs> but so the path that took me to law school, um, over the course, so I've always been uh, sort of an autodidact and like, as I evidence with the computer programming learning, like when I get interested in something, I just start learning about it and I just want to do it. So I just go and learn everything I can about it. Um, over the course of my twenties, um, I started thinking back about the things I had learned in college, it, with the eye toward, well, I never really directed myself at all. I had a couple of mentors who were really great. Um, there was things I learned that were interesting. If I was going to focus on stuff that intellectually interested me, what would it be? And 
one of the defects in my intellectual upbringing was history. I hadn't, I hadn't adequately engaged in learning about history through high school and college, but I had found some interesting stuff. Um, history and philosophy. Philosophy, I had kind of like picked and chose, cho- picked and choose, picked and chosen what I wanted to learn. Um, but I got a little bit more directed. I, I went back, I, and then I just started thinking about like what was I doing with my own life. So as a computer programmer and a software guy, it was rewarding. I made good money, and I actually had this vision in my head that once I thought about it, it was interesting. Where I, I saw myself as sort of a digital farmer. I was like building things and like constructing things, and I was creating value out of something that there where there previously had been nothing, and that was cool. But there was, uh, I would like sit in a room by myself for like 12 hours a day sometimes. And I was like, well, I feel like there's something more I could be doing with my life. I really like engaging with people. I really like ideas. And, mm. uh, you know, this view, worldview that was emerging for me of the world as this, this co-created process. If you don't actually engage in the co-creation process, I feel like you're not living up to your potential as a human being. So started thinking about it. I, and I found law and policy and politics really interesting and, and started getting more, more in depth and talked to some mentors. And they're like, oh, you know, um, you could work at like think tanks or policy groups. You could be a lawyer and work for the government and do these things. So I was like, all right. So I went to law school and I focused on a lot of different things. I, I made sure I focused on technology policy stuff, but also constitutional law and administrative law. And then just kind of shaped myself. I got, got a job at a think tank after getting out of uh, law school. So I think that there's a lot of value to the sort of organic discovery process that you went through um, right. as evidenced by the success that you had in those ventures. Um, right. But at the same time, do you have any advice for 20-year-old you? Um, would you if, – if you could go back and offer advice to the, the you know, early, yeah. early, early career professionals that are maybe still in college right. trying to figure out what they want to do? Yeah. Well, so back to thinking back to 20 year old me, one of the things I learned actually going to law school later on, and this is something I say to some of my former students who asked me for advice and a lot of them inevitably want to be lawyers for some reason. Like, I, I don't know why so many people want to be lawyers. It's, it's weird. Good question. I don't right. know. But going to law school later, first, it gave me the opportunity to go through life and think about the things I valued and what I wanted to do with my life. It wasn't like a default option. Like I chose it on purpose. I also was able to kill it because I had develop the discipline to be able to handle really dense subjects and work on time pressures and deliver things without getting bogged down in unnecessary details, which is really useful when you're a lawyer or trying to think about, like, think think about optimizing a law school exam answer, right? You could write about everything, but what you need to do is figure out how to hit what the professor wants, hit those details, and then branch outward. So being an adult who had gone through work, I found very useful. Thinking Hmm. back to 20-year-old me, what I would say is to understand that you can actually put a lot more effort in than you actually are putting in. Um, so even like, like software, learning software, uh, I would, I would, some days I would stay up, you know, 10, 10, 12 hours just learning how to do this stuff. But there was a lot of stuff I did where like, you know, I'd play in bands. I would, you know, do a lot of like non, non useful activities that I thought I needed. I would sleep really late on the weekends. Like I was a pretty lazy guy at at that point in my life from my perspective now. And, and I know that actually, after having gone through having three kids, law school while working full time, and now you know doing all the different things I do now, there's a whole lot more bandwidth that you could use if you mm. just make yourself do it. So just learn discipline and just start doing more things. Awesome advice. Yeah, that's I think advice. that's probably a great time to sort of segue to the the, the meat of the podcast. Uh, Joe, do you want to introduce the topic of discussion? 
Well, in broad strokes, um, for people who are unaware, the, the Federal Trade Commission held a workshop on informational inner injury on December 12th. Um, I, in some respects, I think this is sort of a, a random hodgepodge of what you know. What does privacy mean in the digital digital age? And so you had the usual run a gamut of programs on how do you analyze risks. What what do we mean when we talk about harms? Um, what exactly do we even mean when we talk about privacy? Um, so, Christian, I think we invited you on here because, A, you were interested in this topic, and B, uh, and I think your colleague, Jeff Mann, Jeff Mann, is it Jeff Mann? Manny, Manny. Jeff yep. Manny. Uh, so he was a panelist, and you guys had submitted some comments. So I, I guess you were there in the room. What was your reaction to the workshop? Any interesting takeaways? And do you yeah. think that that summary is sufficient for our listeners? If there's anything else you want to add to that uh, description? Yeah, it's a pretty good description. One one thing I'll add is that I think that the reason why that workshop exists even so many years into the you know internet and information revolution is that we kind of have no idea what an informational injury is, right? Like we have a gut sense, but even the FTC with its panel with its um, staff of experts and economists, like we're really not entirely sure how to quantify these things, how to identify them across all the different people who might suffer them. So it, it's an ongoing process that we really need to work out, whatever you happen to think uh, from your own perspective. I think everyone agrees it's really hard to pin down what these things are. The takeaways, I found that, I, I found that there wasn't a lot that came out of the panels where I was like, oh yeah, okay, you've got a good point. That's, that's how we can start to crystallize these things. And then from my perspective, I tend to be a very process-oriented person legally speaking, I didn't feel like there was enough attention to the process of how the FTC reaches these reach, reaches adjudications about whether there's harm or in brings investigations about whether there's harm. And that was kind of explicitly baked into the panels. They even said, oh, we just want to talk about what the kinds of harms there should be. But to some extent, whether you find a harm or not is very dependent on the FTC Act and how the FTC approaches those problems, in my opinion. So I, I guess I, I have my, you know, I've had conversations with staff at the FTC and there's obviously procedures and website materials that explain how the FTC does enforcement and surveys and investigates stuff. But as, as someone that has, is interested in process, what is your take on how the FTC surveys the landscape that's out there and identifies things they have problems with and, and where and what do you have a problem when it comes to that sort of process? Well, so the process is that I think that the FTC, I don't know if anybody's done it on purpose. I think it's just been an accident of the way their data security practice has developed over the last 20 years. I think that they've they've built themselves a very ambiguous authority that makes it very hard to know precisely what they're thinking about. So they, they call their approach to data security imposing um, reasonable requirements. You need to have reasonable data security, which sounds nice. I mean, who wants to advocate for unreasonable data security? I don't. I don't think anybody does. The problem I, is, yeah. Go on. I was gonna. I was just gonna. It seems like you are advocating for unreasonable data. Security. <laughs> Shots fired. <laughs> Shots fired. I, I advocate. Here, here's the thing. So on any particular FTC case, it might be the case that the FTC accidentally got it right. So for instance, Wyndham, <laughs> right? No, it's possible, right? So Wyndham, when you look at the Wyndham facts, you're like, oh, what the heck were they doing? Like, oh my god, people. All right. Uh, what, are, what are the Wyndham facts, just for people out there who aren't in the weeds on FTC enforcement right. actions? So, so with Wyndham, Wyndham was a hotel hotel chain, hotel corporation, and um, they had numerous cybersecurity break-ins, right? So they and they they had just incredibly poor uh, security practices where they would leave com 
client data on like computers that were completely open to the internet with no protection on them whatsoever. They so okay, maybe maybe a, let's let's say for argument's sake, Wyndham was reasonably justified in a particular set of data security practices at one point. After their first break-in that they were aware of, they probably should have changed them. They didn't. Then they had a second break-in. They still didn't change their security practices. I think it was a they had three break-ins in total. It was something like that, with lots of data being um, lost. And it's like, all right, well, those are really bad facts. So that one seems like they deserve some sort of uh, investigation, right? Um, but the FTC's approach, uh, the way they go about it, is that they 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 claim that they have a common law of data security, which is supposed to be something that firms can look at and understand what the requirements of data security are. The problem is they don't actually do it through through actual Article Three adjudications. They don't actually put anything in their consent decrees that matches the facts to the requirements of Section 5 of the FTC Act. So when you actually look at it, you basically have to read all of these non-binding, they actually say they're non-binding guidance documents. They tell you, oh, we'll go look at the NIST security standards. All right, well, there's like 64 of those, but there's 72 different FTC requirements across all of these non-binding uh, documents. Okay, well, then look at our complaints. Well, here's the problem with looking at their complaints is that the FTC can institute an investigation when it has reason to believe that there's been harm. Okay, well, that's fine for bringing an investigation, but you can't get any kind of adjudication on a reason to believe standard. You should have at least... Uh, you know, more likely than not standard, but that's not how consent decrees work. So basically, we have this like really crazy so-called common law of 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 consent decrees that don't actually provide any kind of hard guidance. So like I said, it might be the case that in any particular um, uh, investigation, the FTC accidentally got it right, but it's not through rigorous legal analysis that it got it right. And that's that's my problem. They need more rigorous legal analysis. And, and but so I guess my follow up to that is what does that look like? So one of the issues in, as a privacy advocate, I look at the FTC. They they have really limited rulemaking authority. So uh, how they can go about this analysis in, in a rigorous way while still having the sorts of negotiations with 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 companies or bad actors that I think can involve practice is an, yeah. is one thing. And, and then beyond that, I think and I think you'd acknowledge this. Re, data security is a constantly evolving issue. Mm -hmm. So how do you create a, a set of standards or a benchmark um, in law or in regulation that that, that gives companies the, the the type of guidance I feel like you want them to have? That's a good that's a good question, and it's not easy. So at the outset, you know, everybody who's reasonable has to acknowledge that if you set down bright line rules about you know, oh well, you need a firewall. Well, okay, that that gets stale quickly because that changes that definitely right. So there has to be some flexibility in the way that the standards deployed. Uh, first, I would push back a little bit on their limited rulemaking authority. They actually have rulemaking authority. They just don't like to use it because it's more onerous than other agencies have. And, and the reason why it's more onerous is because the FTC was so overactive in the 1970s that Congress actually made it harder for them. Um, so, you know, they have this history of being a little bit um, broad um, uh, in, their, in their exertions of authority. But put that aside, um, what I would look for is either trying to find more um, Article III adjudications, actually take cases on things that you think are good facts, go through the Article III process so that you actually have to present facts and have a record that can guide people, or in the alternative, if you're not going to do the Article III process, have really useful closing letters that say, here's the facts, here's how we match them to the Section 5 requirements, here's our cost-benefit analysis, be guided by this. 
So I, I think I, I actually I would completely agree. I think I think advocates would love to have more information about their thinking and how they do their analysis. But and this is my failure as a lawyer. Can you sort of explain how the FTC would use an Article Three process? I guess it, it's my inclination that isn't the onus on companies to be challenging them in court rather than the FTC to try and not go through its administrative proceedings. Uh, I I believe the FTC can actually bring. I might be wrong. I think the FTC can actually bring. Uh, um, cases in Article Three courts. I could be wrong about that. Um, we should all figure that out. <laughs> we should probably figure that out. Though. I, I thought they were able to bring Article Three cases. I thought they brought they brought a complaint against D-Link in um, the D-Link case in California was brought in district court against D-Link. So I'm you know I'm That's not right. sure what part of the FTC Act is, but I'm sure they have to have it if they brought the complaint. Right. That's fair. Yeah, and D-Link's actually that's a good one, right? Because they got slapped down on their unfairness. Uh, they they got they got the unfairness claim dismissed under Twombly. Do you want to give a little was, bit of a background on the, the facts of that case for our listeners? Sure. So D-Link, um, D-Link is the the company that uh, a company that distributes uh, like all different kinds of internet connected appliances, routers, webcams, all different types of stuff. So the FTC alleged. Um, so the FTC has two bases of authority for consumer protection: um, uh, deception authority and unfairness authority. Deception is you've made some. Um, overt statement or something like an overt statement that would mislead consumers into a set of behavior that affect that affects them negatively and they wouldn't have done it but for your deceptive statement unfairness is that um you're engaging in a practice which somehow harms consumers unfairly you know usually because of bargaining power disparities or you know, something like that so the ftc said that d-link violated both its deception but violated um the FTC Act, both on deception grounds and unfairness grounds, it said that um, I forget what the exact claims were for each one, but um, it was unfair to have uh, unfair and deceptive to put out um, statements saying that you had secure products when some of them didn't have encrypted passwords. Some of them were exposed to the internet. There was like databases that were exposed to the internet. There was like all different sorts of facts that that they alleged delinked. On the unfairness one, the I think it was the Ninth Circuit that it's in, right? It was the Northern District of California. The, the judge, the, the, there was a motion to dismiss the claims for, um, from D-Link, and the judge said, um, among other things, he, he um, dismissed the um, unfairness one, saying that unfairness actually looks a lot like fraud at common law. And because it looks like fraud, you actually have to have a heightened pleading standard. You actually need to bring in facts that connect what you're accusing D-Link of doing to fraudulent behavior. And they didn't do that, so the claim got dismissed from the case. And that's kind of, in a nutshell, what me and people like me are saying about the way the FTC uses its unfairness authority generally. Well, so, and this is where I, so I, I always feel like the FTC is sort of what we have to work with here, and and I and I am sympathetic to the notion that you you want firmer rules, but we're also, you know, and I think we haven't even been talking about the privacy component of informational injuries. This is primarily the, the security issue, but my follow up to you, do you do you at least acknowledge that we have like a serious I guess I would say security deficit or massive security lapses all over the place. And, and if the FTC doesn't have the ability to go after certain things. So, you know, I think about the dealing case as being interesting in the sense that really, I think ultimately your, their issue was these are routers that could be used for things like the Mirai botnet. And so you're dealing with devices that again are, are insecure, but aren't, you know, necessarily leaking consumer data or creating the, 
the traditional types of of data security issues we're concerned about. Uh, I guess I'm just sort of throwing it to you to figure to, to sort of say what what do you think regulators should do? What do you think policymakers and lawmakers should be doing in this situation? Yeah, you know, I don't know anybody who would say that we don't have some kind of data security deficit. You know, across the board. So you have companies that are, are private companies like Equifax losing uh, lots of consumer data. And then you have like, IRS and NSA got hacked for, for, for God's sake. You know, if the NSA can get hacked, I don't know what we're supposed to do because um, they're supposed to be our top spy agency. So yeah, there, there, there is something there. And then there's also the fact that if the FTC doesn't do it, you have 50 state attorneys general and 50 state um, consumer protection agencies that are going to do it. And then, you know, you have to kind of balance that and say, well, is it better to have one federal regulator who oversees this and sets a single standard that firms can comply with, or is it better to let them take it on 50 states, state by state? You know, I, I probably would side with saying you need to do something at the FTC more than, than, than putting it in 50 states. Okay. And, and, you know, and the FTC might be the right place to do it, and it might get it right sometimes, and it might get it right uh, wrong <laughs> well, other times. So, but again, it's the process issues that I have a problem with. So where, where do you – I mean, so – Part of the argument that I, I think that, and I support the FTC here, is that when they use section their Section Five of authorities, particularly their unfairness of power, they're, they're trying to they're trying to exercise discretion. Um, so they're they're not going after everybody. They're not going after everything they think they could. Um, they're trying to go after the the worst actors in their view. So I guess I, I'm throwing it to you. Which of their enforcement actions do you do you view as being especially radical and out of bounds? Well. I, I guess I mean LabMD strikes me as something where yeah you know they thank you thank you for bringing up LabMD <laughs> right so so I mean in LabMD I I think I don't know what you think I think that they're gonna get smacked down by the court um, the oral arguments not go well for them in no, my opinion I, I we've been I've been eagerly waiting I've been wondering where the court's opinion is is in that case well so anyway we're we're getting it sort of in the weeds yeah. so. I guess LabMD, in short, is a, a, a medical testing company. Information somehow got out there some way. And yeah. my argument has always sort of been that isn't this ultimately a question of of companies that are holding sensitive medical data probably shouldn't make it easy for their employee, employees to run peer-to-peer file sharing programs because this involved data getting out through through LimeWire yeah. in 2008. So, right, right. No, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I think as a general statement in, in a vacuum, yes. Medical companies should not allow their employees to use peer-to-peer file sharing to put patient data on the internet. I think that's not con- a contentious statement. But that's the LabMD case is a lot more complicated than that, as you as you alluded to. So first off, LabMD, if we're if we're going to talk about like sort of like the, um, the National Enquirer level of of the LabMD case, you had Tyversa as this third-party company that essentially runs like a shakedown operation where they uh, they found that LabMD had this LimeWire peer-to-peer program running and they managed to pull a file out of it that had client data in it. So they went to LabMD and said, oh, you know, we found this vulnerability. We'll do security um, uh, testing services for you. And LabMD said, oh, actually, thank you for letting us know we took care of it. And they didn't have a problem anymore. So then Tyversa said, okay, I'm going to go work with the FTC to develop a case against you because you violated this thing. So immediately, it's kind of a funny case because LabMD, once they were aware of the problem, they fixed their problems and they didn't have those problems anymore. But then began a multi-year saga of FTC investigation where it got to use 
its civil investigative demand powers to uh, that eventually led the company to be bled dry because they didn't just initially decide to settle with the FTC. It was it's very it's very funny and it highlights one of the problems, which is a whole discussion in itself. You know, the FTC is essentially punishing LabMD for the acts of a third party. The third party took that file out of LabMD. There was a the security, it was kind of like a little bit of both, right? But LabMD bears the full liability for the actions of a third party. It's kind of funny. But that's that's sort of a sideshow. The bigger problem with LabMD that I think it reveals, though, is that, and, and this kind of was contained in the D-Link deci- um, motion to dismiss decision, if you read that, and the ALJ's decision in LabMD touches on this as well. And, the lab, and actually, the oral arguments that, uh, that, that LabMD recently had, the FTC had, the judges touched on this as well. The, the way the FTC construes its Section 5 authority and, and the way it has argued in LabMD is as follows. If you possess sensitive data and you have data security that is unreasonable, whatever unreasonable means, and there's a breach, the breach itself, like if, if there's somebody gets into your system and whether you know the data has been taken or not, whether it's been used poorly or not, that itself is a harm. That means merely having the data and having security practices that we think might be unreasonable is a likely harm. And they have the ability to produce likely harms, which means in essence, because we know that security is not perfect and you have the NSA being breached, every single firm in the United States is now subject to the FTC under currently under its unfairness authority. It's just a matter of discretion whether the FTC decides to go after them or not. That's kind of a weird way to look at their authority. That's congressional level authority right there. I was reading your comments, and I actually think that that analysis you just gave is actually is interesting. I don't know I know if I think that that's a bad thing if everybody is right. subject, but I I I was I'm relatively persuaded that you made a, a pretty good point here. Um, and I I don't I don't have a good I don't have a good rebuttal. Um, <laughs> well, you, well you, and you know what it is. I and again, that might be right. That might be the right way to do it. But if you're going to give the if the FTC is going to have that level of authority, I think Congress should at least acknowledge that that's the public policy we want, and we shouldn't allow it to find that in the penumbra of its FTC Act authority. I think that's uh, probably a really great point to move into the closing section of the show. But before we do, is there anything you'd like to add, Christian? Uh, Anything else you'd like to uh, plug? Uh, Anything that we should be paying attention to? Uh, The the mic is yours. I don't really have anything particular to plug. I have some papers coming out, but um, on financial regulation, uh, I actually have a paper on this FTC uh, issue coming out in the journal of law and economics which will which is a it's a page turn um generally speaking <laughs> if you if you have listeners i i actually really enjoy mentoring people um who are earlier in their career so i get i actually have a lot of people that i, I try to help so if you have listeners who are interested in how to do like a transition from tech to policy or early career i'm, I'm always happy to take emails from people if you want to put my email in the show notes and yeah, we'd love try to, to try that's to be a great resource. Yeah, I think we were. One of our ending questions is just how can folks best reach you. So if you're if you're open to having your email shared publicly out in the in the open, that's great. But uh, well, you can get, or I mean, you can get me on Twitter, Christian Stout, K R I S T I A N S D O U T. Yeah, I think you could put my email in the show notes. That's fine. Whatever. I have a spam right. filter. <laughs> All right. It's not a breach of your information. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm actually much more laid back. Honestly, like the way I look at it, and you can cut this out if you want to. Uh, I just assume that all my information is already shared. So, like, I try to live in a way where it doesn't matter. Uh, <laughs> it all makes sense now. <laughs> right, right. Personally, I'm not saying anyone else should do that. I'm just saying personally. I mean, the Equifax breach, I think they said literally everyone in the United States' information was breached. Or something close to that. More adults do, than there are in the United States. Do, <laughs> right. do, we, do we think Equifax had reasonable data security? 
Well, it certainly seems like there's a problem there. Uh, <laughs> I, it, it, I, I, I think it's worthy of taking a look at. <laughs> baby steps, Joe. We're making baby steps, you see? <laughs> making baby steps, yeah, yeah. I like data right, security, Christian. by the way. I'm not anti-data security. <laughs> Christian, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a really great discussion. Okay, thanks, guys. All right. All right, so this week on the job board, we've got tech policy openings across the country from DLA Piper, Facebook, and the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation hiring in D.C. to Netflix in Los Angeles. You can find these opportunities and more on the Internet Law and Policy Foundry job board at www.ilpfoundry.us jobs. And if you're an employer, why don't you consider posting an entry there? Thank you, listeners, uh, for listening to this, another episode of Tech Policy Grind. Um, we just wanted to highlight to everyone who's listening, we are looking for your feedback. So please reach out to us if you have any suggestions, constructive feedback, or you just want to rant at us. Um, you can find us on Twitter at, at Tech Policy Grind. But, but honestly, the best way you can give us feedback is to rate and review the show on iTunes. Um, we'd love some five-star reviews, but we'll read the one-star reviews too. Stay tuned. What's that? An after credit scene? Yes, I know we're shaking things up just a little bit here, but I just want to let you know that next time you hear from us on January 29th, Tech Policy Grind will actually be at the State of the Net Conference in Washington, D.C. We'll be doing a series of interviews, streaming them live on Facebook, bundling it all up into a bonus episode. We're really excited about it. So the State of the Net is the largest internet policy conference in the country. 